Well, this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. If you have Bibles, you want to turn there, you can go ahead and do so. Uh, I'm going to kind of hang out in 1 through 8 here in just a little bit, but even before I get there, I'm going to take us through a little journey in Matthew. Uh, We've been talking a little bit about discipleship, and I want to bring you through there, but Acts 8 is going to be the main part of where we are. Uh, Every August, when we get back together and we kind of launch a brand new semester, meaning kids are back in school, families are kind of back in new rhythms and everything, I like to circle back around and talk a little bit about our vision here at Dallas Bible Church. We know that vision is one of these things that's easy to get lost, right? It gets lost in the weeds. It gets lost in shared vocabulary that means very similar things, and we kind of forget where we're going, what we're calling to do and some of these unique things about uh, these elements. And so every August, I like to come back and bring us back to um, what God has called us to do here at a church. If you're newer or maybe the first time in a little while, one of the ways we talk about our vision around here is we hope and pray that we would be a multiplying, mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace, that brings joy to our city and glory to God. We want to be a multiplying, mission-minded family marked by God's grace, brings joy to our city and glory to God. If uh, you've missed out on the past couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot more about what it means to be marked by God's grace and how you and I could be marked by God's grace if it happens to be the case where I know all about God's grace. I've sung the songs. I know the Bible verses associated with it. I love talking about it. I could probably even teach you the lesson, but I probably can't say that I've been marked and defined by his grace. It hasn't carried that kind of weight in my life. One of the things that we've said is the time with Jesus, just being with him, following Jesus, sometimes him coming to you, you going out to him and following him where he takes you through the Holy Spirit, uh, time with Jesus. That's how we ultimately be marked by Jesus over time and then more like him in the end. And this is what we want. We want to be a people that are marked by God's grace, not by religion, not by rules and regulations, marked by the, the unbelievable grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives to the point that our fellowship and our gathering, what God is doing in your life individually and in us corporately would overflow into our communities and result in the joy of our city and the glory of our God. And so the question I want to look at this morning is, well, how do these two things work together? Like, aren't they opposed to each other, the joy of our city and the glory of God? Like, aren't they contradictory? It's an important question that we need to consider today because sociologists and pretty much everybody looking around us are saying, hey, we are living probably in the first time in Probably the first time ever in a post, well, that is the definition of it, a post-Christian culture. After Christianity, after cultural Christianity was normative for such a long time. We've moved into this time where culturally around us it is no longer normative in this broad majority like it used to. Things have changed quite a bit. And so I was reading this article this past week that was interesting. It was talking, it was obviously not pro-Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but it was titled, Six Reasons Why Religion May Do More Harm Than Good. And it talked a lot about things that you hear quite a bit, things like, hey, religion promotes tribalism and division and things like that, like a I'm right, you're wrong mentality, so I'm on this team, you're on that team, and we're going to war with each other kind of a mentality. Talked about religion anchors people in the Iron Age, meaning it's old-fashioned and not relevant for today and things like that. Religion makes faith a virtue rather than reason. Like, why would you walk by faith instead of what you know to be true? Uh, talked about religion diverts feelings of generosity and goodwill. Things like, okay, you feel bad about Afghanistan and Haiti. Why don't you give to my giant megachurch? Pastor needs a new car kind of a thing, right? Not how it works at DBC, by the way, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, Talked about religion teaches helplessness and dependence instead of self-sufficiency and strength. Religion seeks and demands power, it said. In fact, here's one of the quotes from the article. In fact, unbeknown to religious practitioners, 
harming society may actually be part of religion's survival strategy. As long as there's hurt people in the world, then there will always be a need to be saved. Point of the matter is there's a lot of people outside these walls in the community, not a part of the fellowship here or understanding of what's going on or what, may be go- uh, what we may believe or anything like that, that are looking upon our fellowship, the church in general, and kind of going, okay, is your gathering actually good? Is it good for me? Is it good for the world? Is what you do, is it actually good? And so if one of the goals of being a follower of Jesus Christ is to be with him, to be in fellowship with him, to follow him, things of that nature, to be like him more and more in the end, uh, meaning like him in lifestyle, character, and deed, what are the deeds that Jesus calls us to do? And how do we bring joy to this city and glory to God at the same time. This is what I want to jump into today. We're going to camp out Acts chapter 8. Before I get there, I'm going to walk you through some of the patterns that we see in Jesus's life and ministry. We've been tracking a number of them uh, as we've been tracking his ministry and saying, hey, here's who we're following, our Messiah, our Lord and Savior. Uh, These are the things that he's called us into. We see the invitation in Matthew chapter 4, but we read this. We pick it up in verse 18, and it says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter, his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus says to them, come, follow me. I will send you out to be fishers, fishers of men. Fish for people is the language that's there. It's not necessarily bumper sticker language like it's kind of been today in some ways. Uh, this is actually a call that's saying, hey, if you come and follow me, I'm going to make you a teacher. I'm going to help you do what you're doing with fish. I'm going to help you do it with people and capture their affections, help you capture their minds. Uh, and so this is the invitation that he's giving to these men. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. It says in verse 20, at once they all left, they left uh, it all behind in order to follow him. James and John in verses 21 and 22. Verse 23 picks it up, and Jesus was going out through all, all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Listen to the ways that Jesus ministered in his community, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, healing every disease and sickness among the people. It says the news all about him spread throughout Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases and large crowds. They followed Jesus. We turn the page to chapter 5. This is the famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching again. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went on a mountainside. He sat down. His disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them. It's the Beatitudes. It's the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. This famous sermon where he talks about how uh, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, The merciful, the peacemakers, all of those are blessed in his kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. For a couple chapters, he just preaches, and the people sit at his feet, and they listen. Chapter 8, he goes back out from there, and he starts healing people. There's a leper. There's a paralytic. There's Peter's mother-in-law who's sick. There's a demon-possessed man, and he's got a ministry of healing taking place. Chapter 9, we get to Matthew's story, the one who's the author of this gospel. And we find out about Matthew. He says that Jesus goes on from there. He sees a man named Matthew who's sitting at the tax collector's booth. In other words, Matthew's the guy that everyone culturally hates. Like, this is the person who's despised in culture. This is the person who's a Jew working for the Romans to further oppress the Jews by ripping them off and stealing their money and giving it back to Caesar and the Roman authorities. He's not a fan. He's not a friend among his other Jews. And this is Matthew. And so naturally, Jesus sees Matthew and he says, Matthew, follow me. And it says that Matthew got up and he followed him. In other words, Jesus isn't repulsed by somebody like Matthew. Like Jesus isn't repulsed by the despised of the day, the deepest, most sinful people of his day. And this is who he calls out to. And he says, I, no, 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 the invitation's for you too. It's not just for Peter, Andrew, or other disciples of John the Baptist or anything like that. No, no, no. Like my invitation for you to follow me, it's going out to the most despised culturally speaking. 
And so we see this. He doesn't just call them and say, hey, come follow me. We find that Jesus goes and he eats with them. He goes into their home, which is an extension of fellowship. And it says in verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners also came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, why would you do this? Nobody does this. And Jesus, hearing this, pipes up and he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. But go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, more than your religious deeds, more than what you're going to give up in order to be religious, I, I, I want compassion from you and I want mercy from you. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And he keeps going out from there. Verse 35, Jesus went into the towns, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And when the crowd saw, uh, when he saw the crowds, it says that he had compassion on them. He wasn't feeling judgment towards them. He wasn't feeling fury that they weren't already in line with the things of God. He wasn't angry. He wasn't ripping into them. He wasn't shaming them or anything like that. It says that he looks at these crowds that are not otherwise following him already, and it says that he feels compassion towards these crowds. They were harassed and helpless, it says, like sheep without a shepherd. Then in verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. We turn the page to chapter 10. Jesus calls the 12 around him, and he gives them authority to go and to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. I love that passage and the continuity there because it gets lost in the turning of the page from chapter 9 to chapter 10. He says, ask the God of the harvest that there's going to be workers that are, go out, that are going to go out and work the harvest. And in the very next line, he says, okay, like, you know that prayer we were just praying? I was talking about you. This is what he's doing with the disciples. He's like, okay, I'm giving you authority. I'm giving, I, I, go, heal disease, cast out demons, preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That prayer that you were just praying, okay, that was actually for you. I'm sending you out to go into the world. He gives them authority. They go and they do that. Verse seven, as you go, he says, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven is drawn near. Also, in addition to that, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons for freely you have received and so freely, give it away. In other words, you who've been following me freely, I haven't charged you a thing for this. You who followed me and have freely received grace and kindness and compassion and teaching and all these other things, you who freely received these things from me, freely give it away. Continues in in Matthew 28 and leads to the cross. Jesus is crucified, dead and buried suffered, bled, and died. Three days later, he conquers the grave. He walks out alive, proving he's the son of God. And he has his time with the disciples. And just before he finally ascends into heaven one last time, before the indwelling Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, he has that conversation with his disciples that's so famous, the great commission. And he says, here's my final instructions for you. I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you to do. And it's exactly what the disciples do. They listen to him. Jesus ascends into heaven. Ten days afterwards, Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit comes and fills that place in a new, different way from the old covenant. Uh, we'll talk about that a different time. 
They start going from there. They continue preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, that he was crucified, dead, and buried. Three days later, he walked out of the tomb alive. He is the Son of God. There is grace to be found in him. Anyone who comes to him in genuine faith can receive that grace. They start preaching. The church starts gathering and growing. The people continue spreading out. And that's what brings us into chapter 8. There's a lot of persecution in the world at that time. People are opposing this brand new movement of God. And we read in chapter 8, verse 1, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen. Stephen was the very first martyr of the early church, preaching the gospel. The authorities come, they kill him, and they stone him to death. Massive persecution spreads around. It says that they buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul, who would later go on to become the apostle Paul and write nearly half the New Testament, spoiler alert, God does a work in his life, began to destroy the church at that time. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women, and he put them in prison. Not dissimilar from what we're seeing still today. Those who have been scattered, they what? They preached the word. Wherever they went, Philip, they went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and they saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said, for with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city that day. Church, that's our hope and our prayer for our gathering, for us individually as people, for our fellowship as we come together, that God would do a work as we are following the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would do such a work in you and me, that he would refine us from the inside out, that we would be a people that are so marked by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'd follow him everywhere, not just in the holy things, not just in the church things, not just in these rhythms that benefit me, but we would go out from where we are, be sent into the world on mission, and speak and serve in such a way that is for the glory of his name that would also bring joy to his city. And so I wanted us to show us these patterns that we see in Jesus's life as he goes and he intentionally makes disciples. And we see second and third and fourth generation disciples there in the, the book of Acts go and continue this work. Business schools often talk about the different stages of apprenticeship. I think we see six of them even here uh, as Jesus passes them on to the disciples. Number one is the invitation stage where Jesus says, come and follow me. It's the open invite. I don't care if you're Matthew. I don't care if you're Andrew or Peter. I want you to come and follow me. It's the decision. It's the, hey, who are you going to be with? Are you going to be on my team? Or are you going to be on this other team? Are you going to come with me or not? Number two is the I teach and you listen phase. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is coming. He's teaching all about the kingdom. People are sitting around his feet. They're learning from him. They're submitted to his authority, and they're listening to these different things that Jesus is saying. Number three is the I do, you watch phase. These are the healings. This is the come, follow me. And Jesus is out there touching lepers, healing the blind, letting them see. Number four is the I do, and you can come help. It's the feeding of the 5,000 where he's like, okay, I'm going to need your help in passing these baskets. And like, I'm going I'm to multiply these loaves of bread and the fish and everything. You're going to need to pass out the baskets and be a part of what we're doing here. So it's the, it's the I'm going to do the work, but you can come and help phase. Number five is you do, and then I help. It's the, I'm sending you out to go do the work. You can bring them to me. You can go do the work yourself. Uh, you can bring it back here. I, I, may, I may heal them. Uh, you can bring them back to me for teaching. But number six is the you go and I watch phase. It's what he does at the Great Commission where he says, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And so again, when we talk about discipleship here at this church, like the goal of a disciple isn't simply to know the rabbi. That's one of the goals. It's where we begin in the goal setting. And so we want to know the rabbi. We do not end with that phase there, even though it does start there. Our goal is to know the rabbi well intimately, to know the details of our rabbi, to be like the rabbi and everything, and then to do the different things that you see the rabbi do. Quite honestly, you can make the argument, this is pretty much the goal of every apprenticeship, every discipleship, or every student-teacher relationship you're going to find. Like if you're a medical apprentice, a medical student or something like that, you've been in school for what, like six to ten or a hundred years now, and your goal is not just to learn some cool information and facts so that you I know what's going on in Gray's Anatomy or something like that. Like, uh, your goal is to understand medicine, to become more and more like your teachers, to be at this place where you can actually go and do the work of the medicine. This is the goal of the medical student. It's to help people to practice medicine and to do the work of surgery. And so this is what Jesus does. He invites them into relationship with him. He teaches them. He models what he wants them to do. He lets them help out somewhere along the way. He sends them out, and then he helps them. And then finally, he just simply turns it over to them, and he says, go, because it's your time now. You've been with me. I'm sending you out. It's time for you to get out of my house, go to college, get a job, and to be on your own two feet, right? It's time for you to come and, and, and to go and do the things that we've been talking about for years and years and years and years together. And so the question that we have to be asking As we look at these patterns in Jesus' ministry play out in the life of his disciples, very simply this, how far have I already decided in my heart and in my mind that I'm willing to go in following Jesus? As we look at the entirety of where Jesus takes us in following him, how far have I already decided in my mind that I'm willing to follow him? Am I willing to follow him in everything? Or have I drawn a line somewhere along the way that says, you know what? I'm willing to follow him into the church. I'm willing to follow him in learning. I'm willing to follow him in character reformation inside my soul. I'm not so sure that I'm willing to follow him as he calls me to go and to serve other people or to consider them as more important than myself or to go into the world with this mindset And this heartbeat that he shares and he passes on to us that says, no, go and make disciples. I want the world to know who I actually am. Like how far have I already decided in my own affections that I'm willing to go? Like do I want to follow him in everything? Like when Jesus says, go and tell people about the kingdom of God, and then he tells us to go and to do the exact same thing, to go and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, am I willing to follow him there? Am I willing to share, go and, and, to, and to do the gospel proclamation? Or am I more comfortable with, hey, being a really good person, being a nice guy, doing works of compassion, kindness, but not actually going and talking about the good news of Jesus Christ? When I hear Jesus talk about loving all, not just your neighbor and the people that we're like, but the people around us, the people we're in disagreement with, our enemies, he says. Pray for those who persecute you. Like when Jesus talks about that, am I willing to follow him there? Am I willing to to pray with people for healing as we see all throughout his ministry? Am I willing to do that even in a Bible church? Or is that just for the Pentecostals? Am I willing to eat and drink with people far from God as Jesus did? And he gathered this great seedy reputation among people that were watching. They're like, I don't know what you, I don't know that you need to be eating and drinking with them. Is he a drunkard? Like that was rumors. Are you willing to go there and following Jesus in some places? Or is that just for 
whoever's down the street. I mean, what about confronting religious and political corruptions, as Jesus did in Matthew chapter 23, doing the work of justice? Are we willing to follow Jesus there? Are we willing to follow Jesus when he talks about the hard work of reconciliation, giving grace and forgiveness to people in your mind and in your heart that have hurt you, that probably don't deserve any grace or forgiveness? Like, are we willing to follow Jesus there in those dark and difficult places where Jesus is going and he's invited you and me to come into this relationship with him and to follow him, not just in the classroom, not just in the church, not just in a quiet time at home, but as you move from there into these kids' ministry classrooms, into the youth building across the street, into our food pantry over there, into homeless ministry, refugee outreach, into our communities, into your workplace, into your family, all around the world, over to Afghanistan, wherever it may be, are you willing to follow him there. Church, like these are the different places and the different things that we see Jesus do. And granted, like if it takes like six plus years to become a doctor, it'll probably take even longer to actually be fully, or you're not going to become fully like Jesus or anything, but to become more and more like Jesus and all these different things, it'll probably take a little bit of time. Nevertheless, a community that wants to know him well, that wants to be like him in everything, that wants to follow him in character and in deed, that is a community that is going to bring joy to the city and glory to God. And so I want to share a couple of things and different observations and thoughts about how we get there collectively here as a church. Number one is that we need to be sure that we are people that live in healthy rhythms. We have to be sure that we are people that live in healthy rhythms, the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus. Not just part of it, but all the way. We talk about it in a number of different ways, but when I'm talking about rhythms, I'm talking about practices, lifestyle habits, not a one, two, three, step-by-step process to where you're getting to an actual end where you've arrived or anything like that. We're talking about practices, rhythms, habits that you live into, that you come back to over and over and over again, ways that you continue to live over and over again. We talk about four of them around here. We, Kristen mentioned it a little bit ago. We worship together constantly. We, 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 we move toward worship in our quiet times of the Lord. We want to worship him, not just know about him. We want to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to do it collectively here as a body of believers over here. We grow daily and in the context of community through his word, through prayer and different disciplines that we'll talk about a little bit later on uh, in this semester. And then from there, we want to serve one another in this church body, in this gathering here. We want to serve one another, consider one another as more important than ourselves, and then we go with intentionality into our community, family, and in the world in which we live. The reason we talk about it like this is what we see Jesus do. He worshiped at the synagogue weekly, and he calls us to do the same thing. He grew in wisdom and stature by reading and teaching the Torah all the time. Granted, he was the son of God, fully divine, fully man. It's a little bit different for him, but he calls us to walk in the exact same rhythms right there. He prayed. He made it a priority to spend time with the Father and to actually talk with the Father all the time, exhausted, worn out from ministry. He comes back and he begins his day in this rhythm of prayer. He lived in community rather than being alone and doing life in isolation. If anyone could have gotten away with life in isolation, it probably would have been the Son of God. Nevertheless, he continues to intentionally choose to live in the context of community. It's exactly what we see get passed on to the disciples And so before we get to Acts chapter 8 and this great missional movement over here, we first have to get through Acts chapter 2 where we see the Holy Spirit coming uh, at the beginning of the early church. They start together and we see these rhythms play out in the life of the early church. It says that they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, to biblical community and fellowship, to practicing the presence of God through the breaking of bread and prayer. 
It's essentially the growth paradigm. We talked about this past, uh, it was last week. I don't know if you guys remember that, but essentially we talked about how the way to grow is through teaching, biblical teaching, uh, coming under the teachings of Jesus. As Jesus teaches at the Sermon on the Mount, people sit there and they listen to him and they come under the authority of his teaching. We, we do it in the context of community, not just passive relationships, but intentional relationships in the context of biblical community. Biblical community is able to provide exposure. We're able to see things that we're not able to see for ourselves. Biblical community is able to provide encouragement when you can't sit there and encourage yourself all the time. Biblical community is able to do things for you you cannot do for yourself. We have a practice mentality rather than just living into random habits, but we practice uh, what Jesus calls us to do, and we do it all in the context of the Holy Spirit. Point being, we do worship and grow. There is this inward movement that says, Jesus, it's you and me in the context of community. I want to grow up in you, character reformation, things going on inside of my soul. But here's my point. Following Jesus means that we keep moving on from Acts chapter 2 All the way to Acts chapter 8, when second and third and fourth generation disciples are scattered because of persecution, and they keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They keep serving the community. They keep going out there and bringing healing to people who are hurting and broken, and they keep building the church. In other words, it doesn't just stop with worship and grow. We keep moving forward to serve one another and go. And this is what we see Jesus do. He washes his disciples' feet, and he says, hey, go and do the exact same thing. He healed disease, cast out demons, forgave sin, confronted hypocrisy, undid injustice by healing lepers, going and sitting and eating in lepers' homes, right? Not leopards, lepers, like cast-offs of society, people that you did not touch or associate with. Jesus went into their home, gave them dignity and value, and said, I see you. He preached about the kingdom of God. He called people to follow him, to give up their old lifestyles, to come and to trust him and to follow him with everything. This is the rhythm that he passes down to us, much, much like a rubber band. As we draw in closer to him through worship and grow, he propels us back into the world to serve and to go. And so I want us to think about this for just a moment. Like, what do you think would happen, individually speaking for you, collectively here at a church? What do you think would happen if... We were people that were lopsided. Like, what, what do you think we were, what, would, what do you think would happen if we were all about one and not the other? If we all thought it was about worship and grow and never serve and go or anything like that? Like, there's, there's words for that, right? And it begins with self. Self-centered. It's, it's just about me. It's inward thinking. If, if I'm stuck in one half of those rhythms, it doesn't work out too well, does it? reading an article a little while ago that was talking about how every single year in America, there's nearly 6,000 to 10,000 churches that have to shut down because they're not able to sustain themselves anymore. They're just dying out. And granted, like churches are planting and new churches are coming in and they're taking over and there are new movements all over the place and things like that. Nevertheless, six to 10,000 churches end up shutting down every single year because they've never taken that extra step. I was talking with a friend a little while ago, who was, uh, that ended up happening with this church. We're sitting down, we're talking, and we were walking through a lot of different things together and everything, and, and I asked him about it. I was like, what, how, do you, how are you processing this, and what are you seeing? What, do you, like, what happened in the life that made you guys need to shut down? And I thought it was fascinating what he said. He said, Aaron, we were never able to turn the corner towards giving our lives away. We were never able to turn the corner toward being a people that give our lives away. And he said, we loved our Bible studies. 
We were all about the Bible studies. On average, people were part of three of them every single week. People emailed me after the sermons. They wanted to, get, they wanted to know the Greek nuances in the text. And like, they were so curious about different elements of the Word of God. But we were never engaged with the community. We couldn't serve in the kids' ministry. Nobody wanted to give up that time or give up their comforts or anything to serve in a kids' ministry. And as a result, we had no families coming in that we were duplicating with anywhere. In fact, he said a story about how his wife was the entire children's ministry towards the end. And she was largely there serving her own kids and a few other kids and stuff like that. And no one would take those things. And I'm not saying that that's not what's going on here by any stretch of the imagination. But simply to say, like, what do, you, what do we think happens when we emphasize one and not the entirety of what it looks like to follow him? And the flip side is going to be just as dangerous, is it not? Like, can you imagine what it's like if, if we are people that are all about doing the things of God? We're all about serving and going, but we never enter into actual worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. This happens in seminaries across the country all the time. We know great things, and we never sit there and, and, and wonder at the beauty of God, as we dissect the, the, the depths of his word. I remember sitting there a long time ago. My mom told me this a long time before I started seminary. She goes, do not sit there in a classroom and do any of these assignments without entering into the beauty of what you get to do. I remember going through seminary and just sitting there going, I got, I, there are times I got to step out of the academia for a second and be able to come back to, oh my gosh, he has given me his word. This is the God of the universe who has spoken to me in this moment. God, what are you saying to me in my preaching and in my sermon time? It's not about just what you do. It's all throughout the week as I sit there and say, God, this is who you are. This is what you've done. What are you saying to me? I need to know this. I need to know that it's not just a job for me. That there's a God who's given his life for me and his son, Jesus Christ. And with that comes an unbelievable amount of grace and indwelling Holy Spirit. Purpose in this life now. Hope for all of eternity. Do we miss that? Can you imagine what happens to a people if all we think about is serving and going and doing all the time? Like what happens to a men's ministry or men in general? Like if, if, if all we focus in on is what we're supposed to do, being a, being a heroic person or something like that, more so than knowing and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself, and he gave himself up. He took the form of a bondservant, and he gladly laid down his life for the flourishing of his own bride, the church. Like, what happens if we're so focused on, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do, 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 and I never take time to worship the God who gave his life for me. Like, what do we think happens if, if we've got the most talented doers in the world doing ministry in a celebrity-driven world, but we're not being humbled or softened by grace? I promise you it's not pretty. Like, there's going to be podcasts about that, right? Like, typically what you're going to see, like, there's going to be one of two things that happen if we get this out of whack and we don't follow him in everything. Number one, there's going to be burnout. Why? Because you're going to have a bunch of really active, hardworking, exhausted believers who are trying really, really hard to do good things, but aren't being changed on the inside or being refreshed by the Holy Spirit. Or, number two is, you're going to get a bunch of really, really active doers doing things in the name of Jesus Christ that may not actually look, think, or act like Jesus in the process. In other words, like it's, it's a problem when bullhorn guy grabs the megaphone and he starts screaming, hey, I'm here in the name of Jesus, and you're all going to burn. 
Like it's a problem when it's lopsided, is it not? It's a problem when we go to social media and it's not necessarily bullhorn guy, but it's Facebook or whatever the platform may be. And we take the exact same tone with friends and neighbors that are chiming in and paying attention. Church, if we're gonna be a people and we're gonna be a church that lives for the joy of our city and for the glory of God, we've gotta be a people that live in healthy rhythms. Not just partially, but the whole thing. We worship daily and in the context of this gathering here on a weekly basis. I'm gonna go off about the church later on in different weeks, you can imagine there. But we grow daily and in the context of community. And we keep going, we don't stop there. We, we go from there, we serve one another, we consider one another more important than ourselves, and we go into the world in which we live intentionally and with mission. And so we begin there. We gotta be a people that live with healthy rhythms. Number two is when we talk about go, we gotta understand that we're talking about going in word and deed. And we talked about that again a number of different times around here at the church, but like when we go from this place, communities, neighborhoods, wherever it may be, back to our jobs, whatever it may be, we are going with gospel proclamation in mind, in word, and we are also going with deeds in mind, acts of service. Notice what's taking place here in Acts chapter eight. The persecution started, Stephen was martyred, Saul's going house to house, throwing believers in prison. And it says that those who have been scattered, they preached the word wherever they went. They weren't just silent. They weren't just hoping you catch on. They weren't just, um, what is, what's the old saying? Uh, preaching the gospel at all times. I'm only going to use words when necessary, right? Like that wasn't actually a real thing. Uh, the gospel is a proclamation of words. They're going out there, they're preaching the word wherever they went. We understand the heartbeat behind it. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and they saw, what, the signs that Philip performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. Let me ask you a question right there. Like, why did they pay attention to what Philip had to say? It's because of the signs, right? The things that he was doing, the acts of compassion, the healing, the, the, the anointing that the Holy Spirit did give him in that time to go and to bring healing and to do miraculous things at that point in time. Why did Philip go and do different signs? It's because he had a message to proclaim, Right? Like, this is what signs do. They point the way to something greater in the end. It's the whole point of a sign. A sign is never the end point. The point of a sign is to get you to where you're supposed to go. A little while ago, we were in Orlando Airport, never been there before, um, look, walking around trying to figure out where we're supposed to go. I'm like glued to the signs because I had, otherwise would be completely lost. Like, I never got to C43. I was like, yeah, I'm finally there. Family, we're just going to camp out here and just like make it, uh, this is our vacation destination or anything like that. No. C43 was taking us to a different location. The sign was pointing to a different place. On the exact same note, no one is saved simply on the basis of feeling better or being able to see now. Right? Like no one understands the gospel of Jesus Christ simply because there was a miraculous thing going on or simply because of an act of compassion or a kind deed or something that you may go do and say. The point of the sign is to point you to something greater. And it's exactly what's happening here in the text. All the miracles, all of the signs, like they grab people's attention and they point them to this greater reality that Jesus came to undo everything that sin destroyed. Like this is the hope of the gospel. Partial, I say that partially now, fully still future, right? A big difference. Like Jesus came to undo everything sin destroyed. Partially now, fully still future. In other words, our great hope, we will be in the presence of God one day. But beyond that, Revelation says, Jesus is gonna come back again, make all things brand new, and bring about this day. There's gonna be no more suffering, no more sin, no more sadness, no more pain. The old things will have passed away. Behold, new things will have, been, uh, will have come in. 
Therefore, Jesus comes and he's not just preaching a message. He's not just saying a thing. He, he's coming and he's coming with healing and with kindness and with justice and with compassion so that people can get a taste of his future kingdom and point us to the greater reality that he is the king who's able to usher in this greater kingdom. It's all working together in this thing to point you to the king that's able to bring you into this kingdom. And so my whole point in this is to simply say we have to be a people and a gathering that resists this either-or kind of a thinking that is prevalent in many Christian circles, but we have to resist an either-or kind of a thinking that says, okay, we're either going to be a gospel-proclaiming people, a gospel-proclaiming church or something like that, or we're going to be socially-minded, compassionate or engaged in our community, it's going to be either or. Because the gospel has never been simply about proclamation, it has always been about reception for the praise and for the glory of his name. The deeds of Jesus, they help set the stage for the gospel of Jesus to be received. And so a little while ago, there was an article, a fascinating article that came out that was uh, titled this. It was titled, How Christians Are Rebuilding a Relationship with Colorado Springs. I don't know if you know much about Colorado Springs. Um, the subtitle of this article said this, it's one thing to tell the city that you're there for its good. It's another thing to show it. So I don't know if you've been to Colorado Springs lately. Um, we love vacationing there. It's um, one of the most beautiful places to go in the summer. We were there this past summer. We're sitting in the middle of town square. And one of the things about Colorado Springs that's unique is it's known is essentially the evangelical Vatican of the world in some ways. The article was talking about that. And the reason it's called that, the evangelical capital, the evangelical Vatican in some ways, is because of the number of really high-profile uh, ministries that are all headquartered there. Some of the greatest ones in the country we've benefited from a lot are all right there. We're talking about Focus on the Family, Compassion International, The Navigators, Young Life, Promise Keepers, Association of Christian Schools International, The Biblica, International Bible Society, and so all these high-profile, incredible ministries are all located right there in Colorado Springs. But the whole article is about how the evangelical capital of the world was so largely rejected by their surrounding community that it's caused this evangelical community to rethink how they engage the people that they live around. And I remember being there in 1997 and in 1998. Spent a couple summers there in one of these ministries that marked my life that was really incredible built me up and equipped me. There's a lot of personal affection for what was going on in one of these ministries. But I remember seeing some of this take place in Colorado Springs. We were there and getting a lot of incredible equipping, getting ready for college and things of that nature. And we went out. And uh, one of the projects that day was to go and to send you into the community. One of the projects was going and picketing an abortion clinic. And I remember standing there on the sidewalks Seeing the people holding the signs, which they were my friends, we were there. And seeing people come and go, fully aware of what we were against and having no clue what we were for. And I sat there thinking, it's, it just feels incomplete. It feels incomplete. It feels damaging, more than helpful, maybe. We go back in and they had another challenge a couple days later. You need to go into the community and you need to share the gospel and we're going to see who can pray with the most people. It's not a competition, is it? I remember going down there as a student 
being caught up and learning and a lot of different things and going like, feels off. And I talked to the restaurant owner and I sat down there and we, we sat together and I, he goes, oh, you must be from that ministry up the road. He's like, yeah, I can tell. I was like, really? What do you, what do you mean by that? He's like, yeah, y'all are, there's different students down here every single week in the summer doing the exact same thing. You've been trying to convert me for years. He goes, you know, it'd be great. It'd be great if you actually came in and bought something and cared about who we were. Just sat there with a guy for a long time hearing brokenness and hurt with an evangelical community surrounding another community, wanting to do good, not able to do very much good. And there's an entire article talking about how now these collective ministries are coming back and they're thinking about how do we, re, how do we rebuild trust? Where do we go from here? We've hit our tee shot in the woods. Where do we go from here? How do we rebuild a relationship with the city? And the response is we have to come in and invest in care. We have to love and we have to serve. And we have to seek their good. And so we see this all throughout Scripture, that some of the most fruitful people all throughout Scripture are not necessarily the most dynamic or most gifted. It's Tabitha in chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. She's a widow who's just passed away. She's described as always doing good and helping the poor. She's a disciple of Jesus. We read about her when she passes away that all the other widows that stood around him crying, this is Peter, showing Peter the robes and the other clothing that Tabitha had made them while she was still alive. In other words, like, this is who she is. This is a woman that loved people well. You need clothes, I'll make you clothes. You need robes, I'll make you robes. Like, you need help, I'll, I'll go and I'll do these different things. Like, this is the mark of a Tabitha. There's a community of people weeping her loss because of what she's invested in them and helped them follow Jesus in the process. I'm thinking of my friend, Val, who did make it out of Afghanistan a month before everything came out. Served seven years there. You know where she got her start in ministry? It was living here in Dallas as a young single woman, choosing to live over there in Vickery Meadow in a refugee community by herself before the communities came and moved in with her. And looking around saying, I want to know the nations. I want to know my neighbors. And then paying attention and seeing a group of these kids get bullied every day on their way to school and on their way back from school. And so she started waking up early, meeting them before school, walking them there, meeting them after school, walking them home, making sure that they got there safe. She gets home and she realizes, hey, they don't have any food. So she starts making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches after school. And they sit in the grass and they hang out and they spend time together. And then she goes into their apartments and much like Caitlin Mullins of For the Nation's Refugee Outreach, she's like, they don't have, they don't have furniture. They don't have anything in their apartments. And she organizes a free sale and the church comes and donates all this stuff. And they come and they outfit all these things and she builds relationships. And in the context of those relationships, she hosts a Bible study. And in the context of so much love, we see happen with her, what we see with Philip. People begin getting curious. They see these signs. They see this incredible compassion. They see an investment of love over time. And these families come and they say, I want to know what you have. And they come and they engage as she shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not kidding you, church, one of the most fruitful ministries you've ever seen. People flock to her. People flocked to what was going on as they moved with compassion and proclamation. Not always at the exact same time, but in correspondence with one another. Word and deed. 
side by side for the joy of the city and for the glory of God. The question that we've got to be asking is, okay, God, what would you be having me do right now? Because it's not just knowing about, but there is a doing element, not to earn salvation, not to earn his approval, but in response to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's different than the what would Jesus do question of the 90s, the WWJD thing, right? You remember this one? It was awesome. It was helpful. Problem is, Jesus was a first century Jewish male carpenter rabbi who was fully divine, fully human, and, you know, you can get lost in that sometimes and go, okay, it doesn't always translate. But we can always ask the question, okay, what would Jesus do if he were me? In 2021, my name in my family, and in my workplace, and in my community, and with my church, and with the people and the situations that he's put me in, what would Jesus have me do today? Church, my hope and my prayer is that we would be a people that are so overwhelmingly marked by his grace. That living out of rhythm with him wouldn't even make sense. It wouldn't make sense. How would I worship him? How would I keep in my mind? How would I be caught up in the beauty of who he is and what he's done for me? How would I be growing in the knowledge of God and, and what he's called me to follow him in and not be sent out to love one another, to consider one another more important than myself, to go to my community with intentionality and with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ who gave himself that you could live with him now and for all of eternity to any who come to him in genuine faith, confessing that he alone is Lord, believing in their heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. May we be a church that exists and lives for the joy of our city and for the glory of our God. Father, we love you. and We need you, God. You're invited. Would you come and have your way in us? God, would you come and would you shape us? Wherever we are today, maybe I lean more on the serving and doing end of things. Maybe I lean more on the worship and growing end of things. Father, would you do a work in me that lets me live in the right rhythms, God, that helps me follow you totally and completely, God, as you've shown us in Jesus. Father, would you do a work in our church? God, we'd be caught up in you. We'd never get over you. God, that your grace, that your mercy would spread. We may be broken. We may not get things right, but you always did. You always did. You're worthy of it all, God. We long to not only know you better, Lord, we want the world to know you. The fullness of your grace, your kindness, your compassion, and your saving mercy too. God, come and have your way. Do a work starting here. Start with me. Start with us, God. Let us be for the joy of our city and for the glory of your name. God, we love you. We give you all these things in Jesus' name.